0: We'll be looking at Mark chapter 6 this morning. We're continuing our series in Mark's Gospel. So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn to Mark chapter 6. Uh, we'll read it in a minute. Uh, but as I said, we're continuing our series in Mark's Gospel. Jesus has just healed, two mar- just performed two miracles uh, in the text just before. We looked at this last week. Uh, two miracles he had just performed to demonstrate his authority over sickness and over death. He had healed a sick woman in response to her faith. He had raised the daughter of Jairus from the dead in response to his faith. You might say that their expectations for Jesus and what he could do were great. Now Jesus has left and returned to his hometown of Nazareth. And we're going to see as we read the text that their expectations for Jesus weren't all that great. In fact, their expectations were confronted and exposed for what they were, severely limited by their familiarity with Jesus. Their loss, as a result, was great. What they might have expected Jesus to do in them and through them was denied due to their lack of faith. What do you expect from Jesus? What do you expect him to be like? What do you expect him to say What do you expect him to do in you and through you? In us as a church and through his church in the world, in the chaotic times in which we live. Have you grown familiar with Jesus such that you can't abide him saying things to you or expecting things of you that don't align with your expectations of him? Do your expectations for what he can do in you and through you match his vision for you if you will just believe? Are your expectations great when it comes to Jesus? Or will an encounter with him in his word expose their limitations? Well, this text answers all those questions and more. And so we need to look at it and and recognize two things in here, I think, this morning that will help us whenever we encounter Jesus. This text tells us that when we encounter Jesus, we should expect confrontation, but we should also nurture the right kind of expectation. So expect confrontation, nurture expectation, but first let's take a look at the text. Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, hear the word of the Lord. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon, and are not... His sisters here with us, and they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, "A prophet is not without honor, except in his own hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marvelled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray." Heavenly Father, as we turn to this portion of your word, we pray that you would be working by your Spirit to teach us through it. Lord, would you confront our false expectations, our low expectations of who you are and what you would do through us? And would you elevate in us the right kinds of expectations, expectations that align with your vision for your people and your church? And we ask that you would do this for your glory and for our good. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, first, when we encounter Jesus in his word, we should expect confrontation. Jesus confronted and exposed the expectations of the people in his own hometown. You've heard the phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. Seems to have been the case here. It shouldn't have been the case. Like, they should have known that there was something different about this kid. Like, this kid never sins. That should have kind of shattered their categories. It should have prevented the kind of familiarity that led them to reject what Jesus was saying to them. Think about what's going on. His reputation for mighty works had preceded him. They had heard about it. In verse 2, where did this man get these things? How are such mighty works done by his hands? So they've heard about what's happening uh, prior to him coming here. They can't deny the wisdom of his teaching. They say that very same thing. What is the wisdom given To him, and yet they were offended. The text tells us in verse 3, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters with us? And they took offense at him. That word offense in the Greek is the word scandalizomai, which sounds like scandalized. That's what it means. They were scandalized by Jesus. Why? Why were they scandalized? Why were they offended? They didn't expect him to be saying and doing these things. So again, back in verse 2, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? So they didn't, they couldn't accept that this was Jesus saying these things to them. Now, Luke 4, you read a parallel account Some commentators think that they're actually the same account. Others think that this is actually his second visit to his hometown. Luke 4 precedes it earlier in his ministry. Either way, what you see in Luke chapter 4, that it wasn't just Jesus that offended them, that scandalized them. It was also what he was saying. Because in Luke chapter 4, they also marveled at his teaching as he opened up the scroll from Isaiah and read that the kingdom was coming with him, that he was preaching good news to the poor and the like. And then he left off from that passage in Isaiah that the time of judgment has come. They were expecting that. And then in Luke chapter 4, he went on right off the bat and said, you know what, my fellow townspeople, my fellow Jews, you're rejecting me. And so he invoked the story of Elijah and he invoked the story of Elisha and how both Elijah and Elisha went to those who were not Jews for Jesus saying to them at that time, I'm going to the Gentiles. You're rejecting me, I'll reject you. So whether it's Luke chapter 4 or here in Mark chapter 6, they were offended both by the person of Jesus and the content of his message. So, what did they decide about Jesus? Well, C.S. Lewis has that famous trilemma, you know, when you, when you confront confronted by Jesus, when you come face to face with the teaching concerning who Jesus is, you can't just say he's just another teacher. You either have to determine whether he is a liar, or whether he's lunatic, or whether he is, in fact, the Lord of glory. His townspeople decided he was a liar. He couldn't possibly be the things that he was saying that he was. He couldn't possibly be the Lord of glory. He couldn't possibly be the Messiah. Not this Jesus. His teaching about the kingdom of God didn't match their expectations. And so their expectations were confronted and they were scandalized. When was the last time Jesus scandalized you? What do you expect Jesus to be? The Jesus that you remember from Sunday school or the lion of the tribe of Judah? Gentle, gentle Jesus holding the lamb or the lamb standing as slain from Revelation 5. Jesus whose eyes are filled with compassion or Jesus whose eyes are like a flame of fire from Revelation chapter 1. The Jesus who comforts you in the sorrows of your life or the Jesus who demands that you lay down your life for him. He is both, of course. But he is both. What do you expect Jesus to do? To recline at table with you or turn tables over? When was the last time that Jesus turned tables over in your life? Or do you expect a safe, domesticated Jesus? Jesus. What about Jesus' gospel of the kingdom scandalizes us? Has he ever said or done anything that rubs you the wrong way? And if the answer is no, then you've either achieved a remarkably contented life, or you've never allowed yourself to be confronted by the Lord of glory. Many of us have been Christians for a long time. We're familiar with Jesus, or so we think. This is the warning. Our familiarity with Jesus, with the teaching of the Bible, can dull us to the expectations that he places upon us. In other words, our safe religion can lull us to sleep. We can convince ourselves that what Jesus wants for us is always in alignment with our hopes and dreams. We should expect to be confronted, to be called out, when it comes to our love of comfort and control. To be called out when it comes to our pursuit of peace and predictability. To be called out when it comes to the way of Christ and his kingdom. This text tells us we should expect confrontation. It also invites us to nurture expectation. His own people, Jesus' own people in this passage, expected nothing from him and consequently received nothing. The same familiarity that fostered contempt for Jesus extinguished faith in them in what Jesus could do. What's sad is that they knew the promises of God, but they failed to see the person of Christ. They knew the promises of God. And I wonder how much that could be true for us. We know the Bible. We know the promises. We know the history. Do we have this expectation concerning what God can do through us in our time? Their expectations fell short with respect to who he was and consequently, they fell short with respect to what he was able to do. The text tells us that a few people were healed. Now, that's amazing, right? You would think he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. That's amazing. There were some people in his hometown who had faith. They believed, and they were healed. But for the most part, because of unbelief, Jesus could do no mighty work there. And So we have to ask the question, then, is, is this omnipotent Jesus in some way bound Is his omnipotence limited by lack of faith? And the answer is no. The demoniac in Mark chapter 5 had no faith. He was out of his mind. That did not prevent Jesus from casting out a legion of demons. The disciples in the boat should have had faith in Jesus. They didn't. That did not prevent Jesus from calming the storm. It is true that in the Bible, Jesus most frequently responds to faith. That's what we saw in the passage last week. Jairus concerning his daughter, the woman concerning her illness. They demonstrated faith in Jesus, and Jesus brought healing and raised the girl from the dead. Faith does matter. But Jesus' ability to work is not contingent upon faith. Jesus will not prove himself to the unbelieving. He didn't do miracles on demand. He did miracles whenever it was right in order to demonstrate his authority and his power. Some commentators have said that his refusal to do many mighty works here is actually an example of God's judgment on them. They rejected Jesus, and so Jesus rejected them. He actually never went back to his hometown after this. So there's a warning here to those who repeatedly reject what they know about Jesus. And so if, if you are someone who has heard this story before or has heard about Jesus before, and you're putting off till another day decisions about ultimate reality, decisions about whether Jesus Christ is who he says he is, and if so, what that means for you. If you're putting that off till another day, recognize that as you do so, a little bit more of your heart is hardened A little bit more of your thinking is dulled, and there is a great risk that you will put off that which can no longer be determined and decided upon because your life has come to an end. What should Jesus have found in his hometown? He should have found faith. He marveled that they lacked it. Why? They knew the promises of God. They didn't expect Jesus to be able to fulfill those promises. So my question is, what do you expect Jesus to do for you? Now there's a right way and a wrong way to answer that question. The wrong way to answer that question is, I expect Jesus to do for me whatever I ask him to do. The right way to answer that question is, I expect Jesus to do whatever he has said he will do. And faith goes to the point of of asking God, of contending for God to do the very things that he has promised to do in our lives. William Carey is considered the father of modern missions. He famously said, ask great things of God, expect great things from God. God? What kinds of things should we expect from God? Well, you could open up the Bible and read it at almost any point and get a picture, a vision for what that is. I think there are certain places in particular that crystallize for us a vision of what God is doing or seeking to do, has done, and is seeking to do in his church. If only we will allow our expectations to be raised to the level of his vision for his people. And so Ephesians is a great book to look at. And I'm not going to go through Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, except to just touch on a few high points. I'd encourage you to read the entire book Uh, later today Ephesians 1 a lot. That's a lot that's said in Ephesians 1 But one of the things that ought to jump out at you is that if you are a Christian You have been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world So before anything ever existed before you could choose or not choose for Jesus Recognizing the need for a Redeemer you were chosen in Christ in the Redeemer by God Before the foundation of the world, to be what? Holy and blameless in His sight. What's God's vision for you as an individual? That you be holy and blameless in His sight, not because of your work, but because of the work accomplished in the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. That's Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 2 is marvelous. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we have been made alive with Christ. So there's a sense in which when Jesus was raised from the dead, spiritually speaking, it was as if we were raised from the dead at that point. And though at some point Jesus came and gave us new life. We've been seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, Ephesians 2 tells us. In some way, though we are very much here, we are spiritually present with Jesus. We were created in Christ for good works. You, if you are a Christian, are God's poema. You are his work of art. You are his special creation. You are his poem. He's created you for good works. Works that were prepared in advance for you to do. And that's, now, then he, Paul goes on in Ephesians chapter 2 to talk about the church. What does he say about the church? That the church has been united together through the blood of Jesus Christ. So in Ephesians chapter 2, where there was Jew and Gentile on the dividing wall, it was broken down in Jesus, and the two have been made one through the blood of Jesus Christ. There's this picture there in Ephesians 2 anticipating the vision that is in Revelation 5 and 7 of people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation gathered around the throne of Jesus Christ, worshiping him. What's coming is meant to be lived out at some level of expression in individual churches and as churches work together, black churches and white churches, Hispanic churches, Asian churches, wherever these churches can work together to give expression of that multi-ethnic people of God that is coming, that's God's vision. We should expect that he bring that to bear some point, in some way, even now. Ephesians chapter 3, Paul prays that we will know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And so, it's God's will that you and I experience more and more of what it means to be loved by Jesus. And then Paul, at the end of Ephesians chapter 3, says this. "To benediction. Not to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Not to him who is able to do more than we expect. According to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. All of Ephesians 1 and 2 and 3, all of this foundation of grace has been laid for us in Jesus Christ. All this work that has been done and that is yet to be accomplished. Paul is saying there at the end of Ephesians chapter 3, God, we know that you are able to do more than we could possibly expect you to do. And so I think bound up in that benediction, bound up in that prayer, is an invitation to nurture greater expectation for what Jesus can do through us, through you, through me, through Grace Church, in this time in in which we live. Do your expectation match Jesus' vision for you, for you personally, for us as a church, and for the work of the church in the world? And the answer is probably no. And, and what I want to suggest is what ought to characterize us now in light of our weak expectations, in light of the way that we are so much like the people in Jesus' hometown, that compared to the expectations and the vision that God has for his people, what he wants to accomplish in us and through us, I think that there ought to be a level of discontentment. In our hearts, a sanctified discontentment, a holy discontentment regarding the state of our own hearts, state of our church, state of the world. I think we ought to be contending with, pursuing, seeking God for greater fulfillment of His purpose in His people at this time. I think this text, by way of example, calls us to nurture greater expectation for what King Jesus might do. Jesus could do no mighty work in his hometown. Will the same be said of us? May it not be. So, in conclusion, an encounter with Jesus will result in confrontation. It will. But it is also a fresh opportunity for greater expectation when it comes to what he can and will do in the world through you and through us. If you're not nurturing expectation and expecting confrontation in your walk with Jesus, then you are on a trajectory toward ineffectiveness and complacency, rather than pressing on in the upward call for Christ and his kingdom. So nurture expectation and expect confrontation in your walk with Jesus. It's his kingdom, and by grace, he's your king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this text, and we ask, O God, that by your grace, You would work by your Spirit in us such that our expectations of what you can do in us and through us for your glory would match as much as is humanly possible the vision that you have laid out for your church in Scripture. We pray that you would do this by the power of your Spirit in us for your glory and for the good of those around us for the increase of your kingdom until you, King Jesus, return. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.